Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For many years, the Interior Department has used a simple procedure to do assessments of environmental damage. It concerns hazardous materials released to the Great Lakes and a few other coastal locations. Now, Interior proposes to greatly expand the size of the cases covered by the simple procedure and to apply it everywhere. Attorney Brian Faraci O'Malley of the Nossaman Law Firm joined Tom Temin earlier to tell us what that means. This is kind of an arcane thing. But since the Interior Department wants to do it everywhere, there's the environment in the country, which is everywhere. I guess we ought to know what it is they're planning to do here. Tell us about the rule and how it works now. Absolutely, Tom. So what we're talking about here are Natural Resource Damage Assessments and Restoration, or NRDAR. And this is a process by which government agencies, the federal trustees, assess and restore natural resources that are injured as a result, like you said, of hazardous substances or oil getting into the environment and damaging the public's resources. So the trustees, the government agencies, assess what was the damage. They work with potentially responsible parties in industry, whoever caused the damage, to recoup funds for that. And then they go out and conduct restoration. And as you noted, type A, the type A rule is what we're talking about here. There are two different ways that the government goes about assessing what happened, what were the damages, and who do we need to go after. And this type A rule, the proposed rule was released about two weeks ago now, back on January 5th, and a comment period opened until March 5th. It's a way of saying, how can we have a simplified process to get from there was a spill to putting restoration on the ground. There are these two, the type A and the type B. Type B is very case-specific. It's very complicated, takes a long time. You go and do a bunch of studies. Type A has always been meant to be the simplified version, but it hasn't been used in maybe even decades because of how outdated the rule and the models were. So that's what the government's trying to do. And the earlier type A was for relatively small cases, I think $100,000 or less. Now they want it to be up to $5 million? Yes. So the way that type A was initially meant to be was very narrow. So like you said, only cases for $100,000 or less of damages, which as an aside, Tom, is basically no NRD cases anymore. The smallest case that really gets moved through, maybe you're talking about four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in damages. And you mentioned in the lead, it was only really applicable to two areas, the Great Lakes and then coastal and marine environments. And you had to use this model that was actually written into the regulations. All the inputs were there. So that was 1997. You know, we were still using floppy disks at the time in the government to run these models. And my understanding is the government can't even like we don't have the computers anymore that are working to run the particular model. So they are expanding who can use type A. But I would think of that as just shifting some things over from type B. So if you had a case that was, say, a million dollars damages, even if you could theoretically model it and do it real quick, you didn't have the opportunity. You couldn't use that type A rule. You had to go the type B site specific take a long time, do a bunch of studies way. So that's where I think the government is trying to go and interior with, with opening type A up. So this would apply to, say, someone, say, a tanker truck full of heavy crude oil or something or some terrible chemicals dumps over and pollutes a local lake somewhere. This would apply 
because it's only a truckload. But it would not apply, say, to what happened in East Palestine, where there could be hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage. They don't even know yet. I think it's still smoldering over there. Definitely. This is meant for cases, you know, even with the new proposed cap of up to $3 million generally or $5 million for certain discrete releases. It's $5 million for a case, like you mentioned, like East Palestine, some larger spill or release of chemicals is a lot. So you are going to be able to use this on more, maybe we say run-of-the-mill cases, not the ones that are going to, you know, the East Palestine, the Exxon Valdez, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Those things are still going to go through the Type B site-specific process. We're speaking with Brian Farashi O'Malley. He's a partner at the law firm Nassiman. And basically is the Type A designed for rapid settlement, that is, to avoid going to court and having expensive studies done by both, I guess it's expensive for the parties involved, the spiller, but also the government wants to settle it fast too, I imagine. You make some good points. I'm smiling because rapid is an interesting term for the way that the government works sometimes, Tom. I know you know this. It is meant to be a more streamlined, more efficient way because, as you noted, the longer these take from the industry side, that costs more money and more time until you get finality on your project. But it's the same issues that plague the government here. The longer it takes to do a project, to go through and recoup what the public lost, the fewer cases you can do. The more time you're spent on the administrative side, the less time resources are out there not being restored to their baseline. So it should provide a way. I don't think it will be rapid, but it should be faster than it currently is, because these cases can take years, Tom, and do take years. And so if you can move from decades to just years, that's beneficial on both sides of the equation. And you mentioned there's a algorithm or some kind of a model that runs such that you can apply the inputs from what you've measured or what you've seen in a given site, run it through this program, and it'll give some kind of a settlement figure. I'm probably oversimplifying. So were you saying there the algorithm itself is probably out of date and it was developed in a way that it's not useful in modern systems? Absolutely, Tom. The current type A that's out there in the regulations right now, last revised in 1997, is a static equation. It's written into the regulations. You must use that particular equation and you can't deviate from it. We have learned plenty in the last 30 odd years of NRD cases. You can't use any of that knowledge. You have to use the old model. So the new rule takes away that model and basically says, all right, we're going to use models that are well accepted in the industry. It gives some examples, things called a habitat equivalency analysis, HIA, or resource equivalency analysis, RIA. They're models that have been developed over decades now that help estimate the damages rather than having to go out and do all of the individual studies. So models like that, the new rule is saying you can use those since we understand them and you know we have a lot of experience or potentially open up for other models in the future that we can develop. And that's a key benefit, I think, of the proposed rule is this idea that it will be flexible. It will be able to be something that we're not going to be fixed in time in 2024 and have to do this again in 10 years when the rule doesn't make any sense anymore. But yeah, it's meant to help find a way to use models to get to that answer quicker. And do the modern models have some flexibility? That is to say, if something, I keep using the spill example, but that's usually what happens. 
if the spill is in a remote area that affects just a small contained water body versus the same amount of spill of the same material, but in a place where there's a public water supply, lots of homes nearby, or whatever, that type of thing, the modern models can take into account those variables to arrive at what a settlement might be worth. Yeah, I mean, Tom, there are a lot of smart economists at Interior who have spent a lot of time developing these type of models. And I think as a lawyer and a recovering scientist, what I would say is that the more details, the more different variables you have to add in, the harder it gets to make the model work perfectly. And that's why these are made for more cases where it's, again, I don't want to say run of the mill because these are all instances where something bad happens and it does impact the public. But you're operating in a sense where, all right, we generally understand if it's this type of spill, we've done a bunch of these types of spills. We have a clear understanding of the variables and what's going on. We can use those models quickly and easily to process something. Well, in your estimation, is industry going to say, oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever to come along? Or are they likely to comment, yes, but maybe tweak it here and there? I think it's the latter. I think industry has been asking for a long time for Interior to come up with ways to clarify and speed up the process. There are many opportunities where you sit there from the industry perspective and you say, I think we understand what's going on here. Let's move on. We want to be done, and you want to get restoration on the ground. Brian Ferraccio Malley is a partner at Nossiman. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences, 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.